Mindfulness Mode, Episode 20. It's not something that needs to be separate from the rest of your life. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host, Bruce Langford. Thanks so much for joining us today. Are you riding on a bus or a train? Just some listening time during your commute? I've got something for you, a five-step challenge called Fine-Tune Your Focus. Just slide on over to mindfulnessmode.com, click on Fine-Tune Your Focus, and enjoy your free videos as part of the challenge. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I'm totally thrilled to have Tyler Bishton on the line today. Hey, Tyler, are you in mindfulness mode? (laughs) If I wasn't before, I am now. Great. Tyler Bishton uses his training as a Felderkreis practitioner, martial artist, and massage therapist to work with people to help them move along the continuum between impossibility and elegance. He brings people into being mindfully present in many different ways until it becomes as easy for them as breathing. Tyler, tell us a little bit about yourself and expand on the details of what you're doing with your professional life. Sure. Thanks, Bruce. I'm a Feldenkrais Method practitioner living and working in Seattle, Washington. And people come to me because they have a problem of some sort in their life. And I help translate that problem into movements, break those complex movements down into their small and uh, constituent components, and help improve each component and then put them all back together and see what happens to the original problem. Cool. Very interesting. Well, I'm sure you have a lot of examples about how you use mindfulness in your life, but tell us how you use mindfulness in your practice. Well, I think that being mindful and being able to access that state is one of the baseline places to put yourself in order to be able to change your life in a meaningful, positive way. If you're not able to become present and aware of yourself and aware of your environment, it's hard to make choices that are useful. So how do you define mindfulness, Tyler? I just see mindfulness as being in a state which allows you to make a choice consciously. And for some people, that choice is to sit still and relax and recuperate. And for other people, it's, you know, whether or not to pick up that slice of pizza that's sitting on the table. But having the presence of mind to be able to make choice is the thing that makes the difference. Right. So then I'm assuming that you feel that most of us don't really stop to think about the choices we're making. Is that right? Yeah, I think that we spend the majority of our time on autopilot and that really there's only a couple of times per day that people are really aware of what they're doing on average. And it's being able to notice those times and then harness those times that can really change the course of a day and of a life. At what point in your life did you start becoming interested in mindfulness, Tyler? Uh, I started becoming interested as a kid. Uh, I saw a documentary on probably the National Geographic show about Buddhist meditators, and I had no access to anything other than that little program. And so I just started sitting around and paying attention to myself and my environment and noticing the effect that being still and present had on my life was something that I enjoyed, so I did it fairly regularly. And so what point were you at when you decided to do this as a career? Well, I started massaging uh, my great-grandmother one night while we were watching the Johnny Carson show. Cool. And I was 
mindful of what was happening because I didn't have any instruction or any rule book. So I was paying attention to the sensations of my hands and of her body and the way that things that were hard and lumpy and cold would get soft and pliable and that she seemed to enjoy it. And so I was kind of curious about the conversation that two people could have without words through touch. And so I've always continued to work with people and touch them in a way that would hopefully bring them pleasure. And uh, I was always encouraged to do that more by my family. And so in college, I studied human movement. And then I finished that and became a massage therapist. And while I was training to become a massage therapist, I started the training process of becoming a Feldenkrais Method practitioner. Okay. And I want to hear more about that. What is a Feldenkrais practitioner? (laughs) That's one of the things that is probably one of the worst parts about being a Feldenkrais practitioner is that it's a huge tent that encompasses people who do a lot of different things. One of the classic quotes from Feldenkrais is that we make the impossible possible, the possible easy, and the easy elegant, and that we're after not flexible bodies, but flexible minds. Uh, He was very interested in human potential and education and psychology. Uh, He was quite a Renaissance man, and he decided that the best way to access yourself and the deeper layers of yourself was through paying attention to the sensations that you get from movement and that you can train being aware, not by using words, but by using movements and sensations. I'm fascinated about the elegance part of this. Tell me how you add elegance to what you're doing. Most people stop learning something when they get to the level that things are just acceptable or good enough. And for most things that you want to learn, that's fine. You don't need to elegantly brush your hair in order to be able to get out the door in the morning or elegantly brush your teeth. But when you start practicing being present and mindful, you start noticing moments when you are doing something that's not even just good enough, but it's just sort of fumbling along. And an example would be just sitting at your computer all day, as a lot of people do. If you sit in a way that would allow you to immediately stand up without making any other preparation, you're probably sitting comfortably, and someone from the outside would say you're sitting with good posture. But from the inside, it's a state of readiness and comfort, and it allows you the option of getting up and moving around or just sitting comfortably, but being able to make that choice. So how do I add elegance to my mindfulness practice? I think the best way to do that would be to notice places where you're not doing the thing that you want to be able to do. And then noticing how you respond to yourself about that inability. So at the level of, let's say, a meditation practice, you find yourself not being present. And rather than berating yourself for not being present, you go, oh, good, I wasn't present. I'll just start over again. And with that kind of attitude of acceptance and forgiveness and lightness, etc., on a physical level... If you learn how to move each part of your body with a little bit more skill, then the overall improvement is dramatic because it's a complex system and each part adds up to the overall result. So let's talk about meditation. What does your meditation practice look like, Tyler? I very rarely meditate anymore. I find it something that... um, actually hypersensitizes my system to a point that I find normal stimulus kind of distracting. And in my working with people, I have to be monitoring things like microfacial expressions, eye movement, respiration, involuntary body movements, and plus what they're saying and what my body is doing. And so it's a very complex dance with a huge amount of information present. 
And just having a system that's so challenging to pay attention to all those parts brings me to a state of presence just out of habit. And I do it enough that I don't feel a need to go elsewhere to practice mindfulness because it's just a habit that I have that I turn on many times during the day. Right. So do you feel that it's it's fairly reasonable for people to use meditation as a way to start becoming more mindful? Oh, absolutely. I think it's one of the better ways to do it. The We talk about something in the Feldenkrais Method called signal-to-noise ratio. And that's the idea that the more there is happening, the more significant something needs to be in order to notice a change. So if we're at a cocktail party, we have to yell in order to be heard. Mm-hmm. But on this podcast, just the two of us and there's silence and I could whisper and everyone would be able to hear me clearly. When you sit, you start turning down all of the noise that you get through your own sensations. So the sensation of movement and the control of movement and all the other things that movement entails activate lots of parts of your brain. And so just sitting still turns down a lot of those movements. Uh, sitting is, is mentally and electrically more quiet than standing. Lying down is more quiet than sitting. But most people fall asleep when they lie down because we're all chronically exhausted. When you turn the noise down... You don't have to have as loud of a signal. And so over time, you get better at making things quiet inside yourself. And that gives you a bigger space inside yourself to notice yourself and the environment around you. I see. I'm, I'm really fascinated with some of this explanation because, yeah, yeah, you're so well-versed in this. So I just want to set up a scenario here, Tyler. If I came to you and I said, you know, I think I want to learn how to become more mindful, but I'm I'm not into meditation. I, I don't I've had some bad experiences with that. I don't want to do meditation. Can you help me? What should I do? The one of the first things that I do when I work with people is find out why being mindful would make a difference for you. So rather than just saying, okay, here's some things you can do to be more mindful. I say, let's say that you were able to be successfully mindful. How would that make a difference in your life? Well, I would say my mind is just so busy, going crazy. Sometimes it drives me completely insane. I'm thinking one thing, I'm thinking another, and I, I go to another room to pick something up, and then I think, oh, I, I forgot to do such and such. And then I walk over, and then I go, oh, there's a phone call I should make. And then I start to make the phone call, but I think, oh, but I left something out of the fridge. I better go put it in. My mind just drives me crazy, and I'm thinking that mindfulness could help that. Am I right? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. In that case, if one of the main things you're looking to do is be able to sort of stay on track and stay focused and probably be more productive, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you work in a physical job or a more sedentary job is another important distinction. And I guess for you, with podcasting and, and doing that stuff, you spend a lot of time sitting and writing and talking to people and doing stuff like that on the computer? Well, that's true. And for this scenario I'm setting up, I'm just trying to think what this imaginary person might do. I'm thinking they are fairly sedentary. So you can see how I, I don't really deal much with generalizations. I deal with the person in the specific instance and right. then what information I have in the library of my head that can help them best. So it's a little bit tricky with, with sort of generalizations. But usually I help people get more mindful and more skillful at the activity that they do most. So if you sit down in a computer, then I would teach you about how you can position your pelvis in different ways, how you can breathe differently, how you can uh, move your shoulders and hands differently, 
how the way that you use your feet affects the way that you sit until you have a whole bunch of different hooks and ways of changing the way that you sit so that it's more comfortable, etc. And in the process of learning how you use your pelvis, how you use your spine and your ribs and your face and your tongue and your respiration and your fingertips, how you use the whole system, you spend a lot of time being mindful. Once you develop that skill, then you can start developing the habit of using that skill through accessing sensations. That makes sense to me. Okay. Do you want me to give you a little example of what it would be like to learn one of these things? Yes, I do. It's okay. I'll just sort of talk to a an imaginary person, have them go along with this. If, if you at listening at home or if you on the call want to do this, uh, feel free to follow along. So sit on your chair so that your, just your sit bones are touching the edge of your chair. Your back isn't touching a backrest. Your arms can be on an armrest. That's fine. And you want your feet flat on the floor in front of you. And while you're sitting in this position, take just about 10 seconds to scan from the top of your body down through your body to the floor. Okay, I'm doing this right now. Okay. So I'll just give everyone that little bit of time. And what I want you to notice, first of all, is what did you notice when you scanned yourself? Most people, when they sit and they scan, the first thing that their brain attends to is what is uncomfortable. They'll usually say, oh, I have this spot in my neck or my foot or my hip or my back, or there's somewhere that's painful that jumps to the forefront of their awareness. So one of the first things that makes a huge difference is just to notice that if you scan your whole body again and you feel everything that you have the capacity to feel inside yourself easily, notice how small that pain is in comparison to the rest of your body. That it's usually only a small locus, but that is it's eating away at a lot of mental resources. So in the same way that you can hold your finger in front of your face and you can focus on your finger or you can focus on the background without moving your eyes, you can change your awareness of yourself and your situation by changing, focusing on the discomfort to focusing on the entire situation and all of the comfort that that contains. So that's just one quick hit. The next thing would be to start going into movement, and that would be to put the weight further forward and further back on your sit bones by rocking your pelvis forward and backwards a little bit. And you can let your belly stick out and your belly button move away from your spine as you move in one direction, or it can come close to your spine as you move in that same direction or another direction. But just let your belly be soft. Let your breathing do whatever it wants to do, but rock slowly forward and backwards on your sit bones. And notice how that makes your body feel. Notice if you feel a weight shift under your feet as well. You're not doing anything with your feet, but... By moving one part of your body, you're affecting the whole system. Notice that your visual field moves slightly as your head moves around. So just one small movement in the middle of your body ripples up and down your whole body and affects everything. And I want you to make that movement smaller and smaller now. And also make that movement slower and slower. And so while you were oscillating, you're slowly coming to rest. So just as you let go of the pendulum and it swings smaller and smaller and slower and slower until it comes to a rest at the bottom, I want your rocking movement to get slower and slower and smaller and smaller until you find yourself resting at the most comfortable position. And in that position of rest, I want you to scan your body again and notice whether or not things have changed. So that would just be a, a quick intro that works for most people.
Right. Very good. Thank you. That is excellent. I want to ask your opinion about standing desks. And if any of our listeners aren't familiar with these, some of my friends who are entrepreneurs and business people, they use these desks that you can change them to a standing position or a sitting position. And then, uh, you know, if you're working at your computer or your desk all day long, then you get these various positions that you can work at. What's your opinion on these? Thumbs up. I think that standing desks are great. uh, And I prefer ones that can go from sitting to standing and back and forth above standing. Because most of the time, the solution is to make a change, not to do something different and only do that different thing. Right? If you get to stand for a while and then sit for a while and give yourself a break from either position, you distribute the effort through your body throughout the day in a much more comfortable way. Right, that makes sense because I notice when I stand at my computer, I'm really happy doing it for 20 minutes or sometimes 30 or 40, but then I want a different position. So that's why then. Yeah, I think one of the things that we've really lost out on as a culture is fidgeting. We're trained from very early on to sit still for long periods of time in positions that we didn't initially choose until we stop. And kids do that because it's more comfortable. You know, their butt falls asleep or their back gets tired or whatever, and they just naturally move to another position. We have just tuned down our sensitivity to ourselves so much that we don't make those choices to even make a small shift in your sitting until it's hours too late. So that's why when I go into classrooms sometimes, I see some children sitting on an exercise ball or there are certain children sitting on a chair that is like a rocker chair and so on. It's because they have needs where they really need to fidget. Is that right? Yeah. And I don't think it's just particular children or particular people. I think that animals generally try to find more comfortable positions and environments for themselves to be in. And that we socially, culturally, etc., condition people to not listen to themselves as much as part of a process of being part of society. And a lot of that is great, but sometimes it gets taken too far and people stop being able to feel and hear themselves in the process. Tyler, you, we've talked a lot about the positive aspects of mindfulness. Have you ever experienced any negative aspects or ever been frustrated with your mindfulness practice? Anything like that? Uh, On a personal level, sure. Uh, I have sometimes come to places inside myself that I didn't particularly enjoy and had to come to terms with finding out I was something that that was different than what I had hoped I would be or thought I would be. And in working with clients, uh, sometimes I come to those spots with them where we find out that there's a, underneath all of the presenting difficulties, there's something that's really difficult for them to face. And... um, At first, acknowledging that is a very painful process, but usually once you acknowledge it and start working with it, it becomes part of the positive spiral again, and you have the ability to make it better. I know you deal with a lot of clients in your work. How would you use mindfulness to deal with a client that at first seems challenging? In the same way that I had people focus on the part of themselves that wasn't painful in the body scan, when I'm dealing with a difficult client... I try to find an area of agreement that is not the area of challenge that's something that we can work on until we establish a rapport between ourselves and I get them feeling more at ease and more like they are able to succeed and uh, improve. And then once they have that confidence and rapport and comfort and ability, then we start tackling the more challenging issues. So I think sometimes the idea of just, oh, here's this hard spot, just keep on poking on it or keep on working on it until you break through can be counterproductive and sometimes you need to move to other areas 
to get momentum up so that when you hit that problem, you're hitting it running. Right. I want to talk about discipline, Tyler. I always get questions about discipline. And what's your advice about how to be disciplined so that we still are practicing mindfulness on a regular basis? I think I have kind of a two-pronged answer for that. Uh One is that discipline is something that you need as an intermediate stage until something is a habit. So there are certainly times when you need to set up a schedule or just take the little bits of practice time that you have available or come up with some sort of strategy that allows you to practice your mindfulness regularly. And the other part of that would be making some sort of way of hooking your mindfulness practice into your daily life activities. So a lot of times in my experience, people do a meditation practice or some sort of focused practice where they work on that skill. And at the end of their practice time, they just kind of leave that skill when they stand up. And I think that once you've established a certain baseline of competence in being mindful and being present, that you want to start messing with it a little bit. You want to start perturbing it by going from a a still, comfortable, quiet position to see if you can get up and walk around while maintaining a mindful state. And once you're able to start transitioning into mindful movement, then you can start doing things like setting little alarms to go off on your phone that have a separate noise that just are like a mindfulness reminder. And so you have a random noise that goes off five times a day that goes ding, and you go, oh, I can be mindful in traffic, or oh, I can be mindful while I'm already talking on the phone, or whatever it is that you're doing. That's a great tip, Tyler. I'm going to do that. I've been working in bullying prevention, as you know, for quite a long time. And I'm wondering if you have a story about bullying and how mindfulness may or may not have made a difference. (laughs) Well, it kept me out of the principal's office a number of times. Um, I was the fat kid in my class. And, uh, you know, I'd walk across the lunchroom and people would throw mayonnaise packets at me and say, hey, have a drink, fatty. You look thirsty. And I really wanted to just be violent and explode and uh, deal with it in a way that would not have been productive for my life. And instead, I chose to take a few deep breaths and uh, just walk away from the situation, realizing that in the end, I had the choice of how to respond to the situation. And I chose to respond in a way that worked best for me. Do you think it caused the bullying to decrease? Yeah. They saw that they couldn't get under my skin. And over time, they just stopped doing it. And later on in high school, I became friends with some of those kids. So uh, you never know what can happen when you give a relationship space to change. Well, that's true. And of course, the natural tendency is to react and to, you know, show your anger. And, and it's not just the tendency. It's just we do it, like you said earlier, without even thinking. It's a reaction that we don't necessarily choose. It just happens. So it gets us into a lot of hot water because it is creating a situation where you're going to be bullied more and more, probably. Yeah. I think a lot of times with difficult situations, the sort of the two main automatic knee-jerk responses are to get really angry and fight the thing that you're dealing with and to shut down and go inside and run away from the thing that you're dealing with. But there's kind of a, a whole third option that branches off infinitely of do something creative like sometimes i would throw one back and be like no thanks i'm full already so use humor sometimes yeah just lighten up (laughs) sure sure and easy to say but not always easy to do but i know that in my work with bullying i really found more and more and more that if i could teach mindfulness concepts 
to those being bullied, it eventually helped just like you're describing. But of course, it's ideal if you can do it at the beginning when any signs of bullying start, because that's when the person doing the bullying is testing the waters. Yeah. Yeah, that's great, Tyler. My next questions are part of my uh, segment called the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Who is the one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? Moshe Feldenkrais, the creator of the Feldenkrais Method. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? It has given me a space to decide what I want to do with the emotion that I'm experiencing. Whereas before I would react kind of in a knee-jerk way and just fly off the handle, I now have the ability to take a deep breath, take a step back, and choose how I want to respond and see if it's different from the way that I'm feeling. Tell us how breathing is a part of your mindfulness practice. I use it kind of like a canary in a coal mine situation. I have developed a habit that when I feel myself breathing in a way that I don't find comfortable... I let that set off little alarm bells in my head that I'm missing something and that that's an opportunity for me to become present and make the changes that are more useful for me at that time. If you could recommend a book on mindfulness, what would it be? The Busy Person's Guide to Easier Movement by Frank Wildman. It's a collection of 5 to 15 minute long movement experiences from the Feldenkrais Method. Uh, that's organized in a way that allows people to find things that are meaningful to them very quickly and uh, make a positive change. Interesting. All this will be in our show notes. Can you share an app which helps you be more mindful? I find that being organized helps me be much more mindful. So I use uh, Meister Task and MindMeister. One of them is an online mind mapping software and the other one is a task management software and they link back and forth. So when I have a problem I'm working on, I just throw up a mind map and then uh, throw those mind map chunks into a task and that allows me to stay focused and not have as many distractions. What advice would you give a person who is new to the idea of mindfulness and they'd like to start using it in their life? Start right now. And then when you find yourself not doing it, start again. Excellent. Well, Tyler, it's been such a pleasure to spend this time with you today, and I certainly feel like I've learned so much from you and all your discussion here. Do you have anything else you'd like to leave with us, any other thoughts on mindfulness and how we can make it work for us more successfully? Just remembering that mindfulness is a skill like any other and that it's not something that needs to be separate from the rest of your life, something that you can develop until it becomes a habit and the part of your life. So how can Mindful Tribe contact you or learn more about what you do, Tyler? TylerBishton.com should be up and running in the next few days, and uh, that will have links to all my contact info. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Tyler. Thank you very much, Bruce. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. In appreciation, I'll mention you at the top of an upcoming show. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.